The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Let's ask God's help. Father, would you send your spirit to set fire to this word? To make it real to us? Give us the eyes we need to see, the ears we need to hear, the hearts we need to believe and delight in this glorious truth. Father, speak. Your servants anxiously wait to hear what you have to say. It's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. And return to your feet, please, one more time. We continue working verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We remain in chapter 4, reading together verse 1 through 6. This is the holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. We must receive it as such. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all, and all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. So as you are surely aware by now, we have come to this section of Paul's letter where he draws our attention to seven ones. And as the verse markers indicate for us, they've been divided up, these seven ones into two separate groups of three and then one, one, all alone. All alone. And, and we have really come to realize how each one of these statements reveals something to us about one person in the Godhead. We have one body, one spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, one hope. We have one Lord, and Christ Jesus is that Lord, one faith, one baptism. We have one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all. 
So as I have been reciting to you week after week, what we're seeing here in verses 4 through 6, each one of these verses, they tell us something about how the triune God relates to the church. It goes beyond this to tell us something about what that relationship does to bring us into this unity that we're meant to enjoy, this oneness that is ours. So last Sunday, we considered together verse 5, how the true church is unified in our one Lord, the most fundamental of Christian confessions. We confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. We recognize that we are a people who have been redeemed and ransomed, called together out of the world and united together under this one banner that belongs to our one Lord. Now, to be clear, Christ Jesus is not just Lord of the church. He is Lord over the entire cosmos. All authority in heaven and earth is what he said. We've been commanded by God not only to bow in submission to this one who is Lord, but to say among the nations, the Lord reigns. We're in a particular, particularly beautiful section of the Psalms right now. As we look through, we're working from Psalm 93, we will eventually come to Psalm 99. And the overarching theme is that right there. The Lord reigns. He doesn't just reign in your heart. He doesn't just reign in the church. There is not one square inch of the entire cosmos over which Christ Jesus, our Lord, does not reign. But the question, the question that we have to ask ourselves is those who claim the name of Christ, those who bear the name of Christian, the question that we have to ask ourselves is those who confess joyfully Jesus Christ is Lord. The, the, the challenge that I, that I issued to you last Sunday evening was this. When was the last time that you had some particular desire. The last time that your will was for X. But then you came to the Holy Scriptures. You realized that Christ Jesus' will was something altogether different. And you simply submitted to him. You've got to realize that you are not honoring Christ as Lord. Nor are you rightly submitting to him. If you only yield your will to his whenever he happens to be going where you already wanted to go. And this is the case for so many professing believers. Almost everybody has a line. We just do. Those things which we have more often than not subconsciously, most, most often completely unbeknownst to ourselves, we have taken off the table and we have placed off limits to the hands of God. We have said this far and no further. We find ourselves like the Apostle Peter saying, no, Lord, may it never be. Things like children and marriage and finance and career and recreation and romance and food and drink. Any other good thing that God has given us. And the reality is that it isn't until we are pushed up against the word of God in one of these sacrosanct areas. It isn't until we find ourselves pushed our will against the will of God in one of these areas. Whenever we can truly determine whether we're actually following Jesus Christ as Lord or we just happen to be going the same direction as him for a season. 
question again. When was the last time that you truly submitted to Christ? Despite everything that your flesh wanted. I'm talking about a meaningful, significant, oftentimes ongoing. I'm talking about things that will affect the whole of your life, perhaps. When was the last time you found yourself like the man in Romans 7, where there is this pull in your heart between the flesh and the spirit, and yet you came to God's word, you saw what he demanded, and you joyfully and faithfully yielded your will to his? Allow me to go a step further. When was the last time that you poured over God's word, wrestling and seeking his will? Rather than just asking him to co-sign on to whatever decision you've already decided. When's the last time you came to God's word and you said, Father, I want to know your will and have your will determine my will and not the other way around. Or do you do what so many of us do? We shield our eyes. We shield our ears. We run from God's word. Lest he actually demand us do something that our will doesn't, doesn't desire. Here's the way the devil works. His question isn't always, has the Lord really said? More often than not, what he says is, yes, God has really said, but your situation is unique. God couldn't possibly expect you to suffer like that. Beloved, we are people who have been called to take up our cross and die. The Lord Jesus spoke these words. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say to a people who would be tortured and die for the sake of the faith? And we look to him and say, oh, no, God. You couldn't possibly call me to suffer like this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I tell you? We as the church are the body of Christ. He is more than just our Savior. He is our head. And part of what we do when we gather together, we find this unity in not just joyful worship and adoration of him, but in faithful submission as well. So I pray for our strength in this area. I don't stand before you as a man who has done any of this perfectly. Any of you that have walked with me for any season of life, you know. Some of you have walked into my office at times and found me writhing on the floor in agony, kicking my feet like a little baby, saying, God, no. But beloved, there is more blessing than you could ever imagine in this obedience. Not only is he honored. Not only is his name glorified, but we can trust that he is working all these for his good, that his will is your greatest good. That if you knew what he knew and actually believed what he believed, you would find it a joy to submit. So this morning, we move from that statement of one Lord to one faith. Now, before we consider what's being said here, we do well to ask another question of ourselves. When the Apostle Paul says here that there is, within the church, one faith, is he talking about our subjective faith? Or is he talking about the objective faith? 
We asked a question that was somewhat similar, similar to this back in verse 4 when we talked about this one hope. We asked that evening when we came back together whether the Apostle Paul was referring to the object of our hope, that thing for which we hope, or he's talking about the subjective feeling, the, the joyful experience that we have here and now as we look forward in eager anticipation to the thing that he has promised. Because the word hope can work in both of these directions. There's an object of our hope, there's the thing in which we hope, and then there's the experience of that hope. The joy and the assurance and the confidence that we have as we walk through this life. The same question can be asked of this word, faith. And so some people, they have come to this passage, many men that I, that I trust and, and honor as handlers of God's word. Some of them have come to this and they teach that what the Apostle Paul is speaking about here is that subjective faith. It's that personal belief that each man must hold. And we do see Paul making reference to faith in this way all throughout this letter. You remember the way that he addressed it. He said, he's writing to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say in verse 11 of that first chapter, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, that's just the verbal form of faith, and believed in him. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's a thing that a man experiences. That's his personal faith. He'll go on in verse 15 to say, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith. In the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Verse 19, he talks about God's immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Chapter 3, verse 12, he says that in Christ Jesus our Lord, we have, bold, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Verse 17 of chapter 3, Paul was praying that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith. In each one of these, he is clearly focusing on something that belongs to us. He says, our faith, your faith, our faith. It's a thing that belongs to you. It's a personal belief. It's that trust that you've come to have in Christ Jesus. And so they teach that what the Apostle Paul is talking about here is faith, that necessary instrument of our justification. It's in chapter 2 that we read him saying, that it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this, not your own doing, the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Faith, that gift to the Holy Spirit, that first, that first gasp of new spiritual life, that first sign of the new birth, like a newborn baby. How do you know that the baby has come out? How do you know that all is well? They cry. That big, that big gasp of, of lungs full of air, and then they let out that cry. What is the first cry of the new birth? What is that first gasp? of the one who has been born again of the Spirit. Well, it is this. It's more than just intellectual assent, this faith. It's more than just a comprehension of the knowledge, and it's more than just an intellectual assent to the veracity of the claims that have been made. It is a placing our trust, all our weight, all our conviction, all of our hope on something outside of ourselves. It's the antithesis of work. It's the anti-work. It's the empty hands by which we receive that which God has accomplished in Christ on our behalf. It's not optional. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. That which is not of faith is sin. 
So absolutely, faith is the thing which must mark the life of every single Christian believer. Faith is the thing that unites us together in the church. And so we ask, is that what the Apostle Paul is talking about here in the fifth chapter of his letter to the Ephesians? Is he talking about that experiential faith, that personal faith, that belief that marks each and every one of us? I don't think it is. We've got to remember that what the Apostle Paul has done here is he has slipped back into these indicative statements. He's moving forward into the imperatives and the commandments and the go and do's. But to make certain that we don't lose our grounding back in the therefore and what Christ Jesus has done on our behalf and all the ways that the Godhead has worked in our salvation. You remember that he has pointed back to those indicatives. That's why it begins with there is. This simply is. It's a matter of truth. It's a matter of fact. Specifically, he's talking about and expanding upon the ways in which, again, I say the triune God has worked to relate to us and to bring us into this oneness, this unity that we enjoy. And you remember that, again, his command to us is that we would have an eagerness to maintain it. This isn't a thing that we manufacture. This isn't anything that we bring to the table. It's what God has done. There is. There is one body. There is one spirit. There is one hope. There is one Lord. There is one faith. It's what Apostle Paul is doing here is ultimately he's getting our eyes off of our experiences and off of ourself and off of our feelings and on to God. He's moving us into heaven to the unseen things. He's moving us to that which is firm and immovable and, and guaranteed and rock solid because feelings change and emotions shift and experiences, they come and they go. But he's saying, no, get your eyes on that which just is. There is one Lord, there is one faith. And while it's absolutely true that no one can belong to the body of Christ, no one can be found in Christ, and no one can truly and savingly belong to the church of Jesus Christ apart from repentant faith. And while it's equally true that this faith is a thing that God has done, it's a gift from him to us. We do the believing, but he works the belief. His working within us. These things are absolutely true, and yet there's a degree to which this subjective faith, what we might rightly call our faith, it's still being formed, and it's still being strengthened, and it's still growing by the work of the Spirit and the Word. That's why as we move on, and he talks about Christ's gift to the church, and, and the prophets, and the apostles, and the evangelists, and the preachers, and the teachers, and how the whole body is growing together into the fullness of the faith. There's a unity yet to be had. There's a unity that Christ Jesus has already given us, completed and done. Our job is a persevering work, a preserving rather work, a maintaining work. But there's a unity yet to come as we grow together in our experience of this faith. That's why we find in Mark 9, verse 24, this picture. This is after the Mount of Transfiguration and Christ Jesus revealing his glory. And I've We've had a number of mountaintop experiences of late. This is a side note. This is extra. You didn't pay for this. But we've had a number of mountaintop moments of late. And I've had a, had a number of you come and say, why can't it always be like this? And I said, I get it. I want to build a tent and camp for a while. Lord, it's good that we're here. It's good that we have seen this. But we're reminded that Peter and James and John weren't allowed to stay there on top of that mountain. They had to come back down. And immediately when they came back down, they found ministry that was yet to be done. There was a man with a son who had an unclean spirit. And he had been ha asking the disciples for help. And they were unable to help the man. 
You remember he cries out to Christ Jesus in faith that he could do exactly what was needing to be done in that moment. And you remember what the father said there in Mark 9, 24. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. You realize that our faith, it waxes and it wanes. There are times when we find ourselves with very little faith. Then there's times when we find ourselves with a little bit more faith. Even within the experience of this faith family, even at this moment right now, those of you that are here in this room, we find people that are all over the map with regards to their faith in this moment. you got people that for the first time in their life, they're considering the claims of Christ Jesus as Lord. For the very first time in their life, maybe they've recognized, I've always believed these things intellectually, but for the first time I'm placing my weight upon them. I'm placing my hope and my faith upon them. And it's with trembling knees that they do this. They have got faith, but it's, it's so new and it's so fresh. Then there's other people that have been walking with Christ Jesus as Lord for decades. And their faith is as robust and solid and strong as ever. Nothing can knock them off the line. They are just, they are just steadfast in their assurance, never wavering in their hope and their trust in Christ Jesus. And then there's others of you. You find yourself feeling like you're holding on by a thread. You know there's a thing called faith there, but you can hardly discern it. It's tiny and it's, and it's weak. And you know if left up to yourself, it's going to break and leave you damned forever. And, and it's not just that there are these three groups and that's where you're destined for the whole of your Christian life. More often than not, what happens is a man walks through all of these stages. There's those, those moments where your faith seems unshakable. I will never doubt and I will never waver. And I am I'm as sure as sure can be that Christ Jesus is Lord and I am his and he is mine. But then as Mike Tyson said, everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the mouth. And life punches you in the mouth. And, and, and again, believing faith, saving faith, repentant faith, it is of the same type for all Christians. It comes from the same place for all Christians. It is the gift of God by which we reach out our empty hands to receive all that he has done for us in Christ. But we're not all enjoying the same experience in this moment. That's why we praise God that during that very same encounter at the base of the Mount of Transfiguration, during that very same encounter with that man, with the, with the sick boy, the boy with the unclean spirit that needed his help, that very same moment in which his disciples could not do what Christ Jesus did, he looked to them in Matthew 17, verse 20, he says, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. We praise God that our salvation is not tied to the robustness or the strength or the intensity of our faith. We praise God that our redemption and our salvation and our assurance is tied to the sufficiency of our Savior. And it's to him that Paul is drawing our attention. That, that's why he has written the way that he does. 
Remember, I told you that what he's telling us in each of these verses is something about a way in which one of these persons of the Godhead is working in our redemption and bringing us into this unity. This is a thing which Christ Jesus is the source of. He is our one Lord, and it is in him that we find our one faith. Paul's directing our attention to Christ Jesus and his finished work. That's where he wants our hearts settled, not in the experience of the moment. I've walked with so many of you because I myself have experienced those times when we find ourselves just absolutely neurotic trying to figure out, is my faith enough? Is my repentance sincere enough? And is my belief strong enough that I can be guaranteed that it's real? And I can be guaranteed that it's going to endure to the end? And the answer is only one and the same thing. No, you look to Christ Jesus. You look to your Lord. You ask yourself not, is my faith strong enough? You ask, is he sufficient enough? Do I or do I, do I not believe the words that he has said and the things that he has accomplished on my behalf? There is one faith that is the object of our faith. That is the content or the body of truth that we believe. We see it spoken of this way in Acts chapter 6 verse 7. This is the early days of the church. We read that the word of God continued to increase and the, number of the, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. 1 Timothy 4, 6. A good servant of Christ Jesus must be tra trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. And then the text that David read for us earlier in Jude 3. Contend for the Faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. That's it. There is one faith. This doctrine of truth, the teaching of God that has been handed down once and for all to the saints. Those irreducible truths that a man must know and trust in and believe and place his hope upon if he's ever going to be saved. You see, the, the world and so many, even within the church, they place a a great deal of value on something called faith and, and personal belief. You'll hear people say things like this. You know, oh, so-and-so, he really is a man of faith. They'll come to you during times of tragedy or trial and say, you know, you just got to have faith. But they so rarely slow down to ask, faith in what? And faith in who? And if you dig a little bit, what you'll find is what they're really referring to is mostly faith in themselves. Or faith in humanity. Or faith that things are just going to work out somehow. Or those that are of the religious type. Oftentimes what you'll find is that they place their faith in a God and a gospel that don't exist. More sadly than this, a God and a gospel, even if they did exist, could not save you. They have great value on this personal experience. This feeling called faith, but yet in the end, there are people with zeal without knowledge. And the scripture warns us, this is not good. So Paul says there is one faith. That doctrine, that teaching, that truth that has been handed down from Christ Jesus through his apostles to all the saints. And there's great unity in this. This is one of those places where we find our oneness. And even as you hear me say this, some of you are thinking, how, how can you make that claim? How can you make the claim that, that the doctrine, that the, that the truth that has been handed down to the church through the apostles, how can you claim that there's unity in this when you've got so many Protestant denominations? 
When you've got men all over that can't seem to agree on things that the scripture has something to say about. Things like baptism or the end times or the nature of God's providence with regards to the, the will and the lives of men. And so we've got to make clear what we're talking about here. Got to make clear that what the Apostle Paul must be pointing to here is not, if I can steal words from Martin Lloyd-Jones, it's not the full compendium of all theological thought. You see, there, there are things, there, there are truths, there, there are portions of theology and Christian belief that are incredibly important and meaningful, but that they are not ultimately essential for your salvation. And therefore, God in his divine wisdom and in his perfect providence, he has allowed sincere, spirit-filled believers to disagree on these things. Now, to be clear, there is a right answer. And we have it. To be clear, there is a right answer. And we've been called to be a people who strive for that right answer. We don't honor God when we say, okay, therefore, I won't seek these things. How often does the scripture exhort us towards sound doctrine? That word can also be translated as healthy. We're to be healthy in our handling of the word. We're to be sound in our understanding of what God has said. Understanding that we will always be reforming. Our thoughts will always be, be, be molded and, and brought back into line with God's truth by the work of his spirit and, and, the, and the power of his word. And we know that the church for 2,000 years has wrestled with many of these things. And yes, I know that there is great danger that many of the secondary, even tertiary things, they will have an effect on the way we handle the primary things. Not so much even where we land. Let me just tell you an observation I've made as I've sat with people. So often I will sit with people and we will be at odds. That may, not be, a, that may be too strong a word, not at odds. We might be in disagreement about a secondary issue or a tertiary issue. And while those things in and of themselves might not speak directly to the primary issues, that one faith that we hold, oftentimes the way in which they arrived at their conclusion with regards to those secondary and tertiary issues reveals an incredible weakness in their understanding of the primary issues and their, the way in which they handle God's word. What the Apostle Paul is saying here, though, is there is one faith. All that is necessary for a man to know and rest his hope upon if he's going to find peace with God. That has been given with undeniable clarity in the scriptures. That's the perspicuity of scripture. It's a fancy word. It's a confusing word that oddly enough means clarity. But there's an incredible clarity from God with regards to those things which we are meant to know. Those things which we must place our hope upon if we're going to be saved and have peace and be justified before God. The Baptist Confession says it like this, all things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in, the, in some place of scripture or another that not only the learned, but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may obtain a sufficient understanding of them. Psalm 119, 130 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. What does Paul take all that time to make clear in his first letter to the Corinthians? 
He says this word that we proclaim, we don't come in lofty speech. We don't come in worldly wisdom. And instead, what it's found to be is a stumbling block and a scandal and foolishness and folly to all the learned men. But to us who are being saved, it is the wisdom and power of God. So that we can say with absolute confidence that those who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, those who hear this one faith and yet reject it, they don't do so for lack of clarity. And they don't do so for lack of intellectual capacity, but rather it's because of a hardness of heart. It is a moral and a spiritual blindness and inability. So we know, that's why we proclaim that the Holy Spirit must come and illuminate the eyes of the heart. If a man is ever going to believe these things as clear and as straightforward, and if I dare say it, simple as they are. We know that apart from the work, of the Holy Spirit, no man will ever receive these things. And yet, with the work of the Holy Spirit, even a child can receive these things. Rest their faith upon it. And yet, you must be encouraged. You must know without a shadow of a doubt that even if one single person, even if there's not a single person in the entire universe that believes these things, it will not diminish its truthfulness or its power one iota. You realize that even in a world full of men who have gouged out their own eyes, the sun, the sun still shines as brightly as ever. This is one faith, one truth, one doctrine, whether you believe it or not. Whether anyone believes it or not. So we do well to ask then, what is this one faith? What is this doctrine which a man must receive if he's going to truly and savingly belong to the church? What is this gospel that a man must absolutely know and embrace if he's going to be called truly Christian? What is the good news apart from which man will never be justified before God? Well, those of you that have been through our membership class, you know that it only takes me six hours to unfold this. Not because it's not simple, but because we're having to unlearn so much bad doctrine. And you realize that's my hope for our children. I don't want our kids to have to unlearn things that they've been taught. I want them to grow up to rightly, to learn, learning to, to rightly divide the word of truth and rightly handle God's word and not believe these things just because mom and dad believe these things, but to believe these things because they're true. And they have seen with the eyes of their heart that God has given them that these things are true. But we spend something like six hours gathered together during our membership class just going over the, the gospel. The good news of Christ Jesus, this one faith that is ours. And I'll tell you, those of you that have gone through the class, you can attest while we're not standing and singing together. The reality is it very quickly turns from what might be called a training to what can rightly be called worship. It is worship as we bathe and bask in the glory of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. But how, how can I succinctly tell you what is this one faith? That has been the concern of the church throughout all generations. That's why they write confessions and creeds. Now, confessions is a much more broad thing, covering some of those secondary and tertiary things, those, those denominational distinctives that might be true of us and not true for other Christians. But then there's the creeds. Those I believe statements that throughout the history of the church, men have gathered in a place like this and they've just said, this is what we believe. We recite scripture alongside it, but the reality is what this is, is a summation of biblical truth. These are the things you have to believe in order to be Christian. 
These are the things that you must place your hope upon in order to be made right with God. These are the boundaries of orthodoxy. These are the limits upon which, beyond which if you go, you'll find yourself in heresy. So if we're going to do this, we must begin where all things begin. We begin with God. That's where I begin in my class. I pray that's where you begin in your thoughts. Man finds himself in incredible danger whenever he starts with himself and tries to reason up to God. We must always begin with God. Not just any God. The God who has revealed himself in creation. The God who has revealed himself in our consciences. The God who has most clearly revealed himself in his word, Christ Jesus our Lord. And we see there that this God is a God who is glorious. Infinite in all his glory. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord and that is my name. My glory I will give to no other. We begin with this infinitely glorious God. That is the weight and the sum and the majesty and the beauty of all that this God is as he has revealed it in creation himself, itself. And we've, we've got to particularly pay attention to the fact that this glorious God is a holy, holy, holy God. So holy, so pure, so other, so righteous, so just, so true. That those sinless seraphim would stand there around the throne, covering their face and covering their feet, knowing their own creatureliness before this holy, holy, holy God. And knowing that they cannot bear to look upon his immediate glory, lest they melt in their creatureliness. He is a holy, holy, holy God of two pure eyes to even look upon sin. So infinitely holy that he cannot allow anything that is unclean to ever enter into his presence. Because all that is unclean and all that is not like him and all that falls short of his glory is an offense, an abomination, and a stench to him. So we begin with this glorious God who is utterly repulsed by all that is not holy. And it's from then, then, that we can begin to build our anthropology and consider our doctrine of man and who are we who have been made in this image of God. Knowing that we're surrounded by a world and even maybe our own hearts that cry out that man is mostly good deep down. Same thing like, you know, God, God knows my heart. So where do we go? But we go back to that first man that God has created there, the man of the dirt that he created and he placed there in the garden and he gave him a very specific commandment that he not touch this one tree. And God says to the man, I've created you to reflect and to, to radiate and to represent my glory to the ends of the earth, to go out and subdue everything that I've made and made it just like this perfect garden that I've placed you in. And he says to the man, if you will just keep this one commandment in perpetuity and perfectly, if you will keep this one commandment that I've given you, you will live. But if you break this commandment, then you will surely die. And we look to this one man, the perfect man in the perfect place with the perfect God and the perfect wife at the perfect time. And we look at how he rebelled and he sided with the serpent and how sin came in through this one man and through this one man came death to all men. And we see how through this sin came all the chaos and all the destruction and all the depravity and all the death and all the decay that we see all around us. We see how all of this came through this one man, the perfect man in the perfect place, and still he sinned. And we recognize that because of this man, we are all born with a sin nature, not only bent towards sin, but guilty before this holy, holy, holy God. 
slaves to sin. We want to say to one another, we want to cry out to God, oh, surely he knows my heart. And he says to the prophet Jeremiah, I know your heart. It is deceitful and it is wicked. And we want to say to this God and we want to say to one another and we want to say to ourselves, well, we're mostly good deep down. And he says through uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have all become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God in their eyes. He says, you're not mostly good. You are totally depraved. You are slaves to sin. You have sided with Satan. You cannot please me. You cannot know me. You cannot find any righteousness in yourself. Let me go beyond this and say that all your righteous deeds have become like filthy rags. Even the best thing you have ever done is a stench in my nostrils. It is despicable to me. It is an offense to me because I'm a holy, holy, holy God. The natural man, despite all of our boasting, despite any efforts we might make, despite anything that might resemble righteousness, despite whatever good we might do, we can never make up for that which we have done. Then we stand before this holy, holy, holy God who came and revealed to us a holy, holy, holy law that revealed to us his nature. And all this perfection. And he holds this up before us. And those who are born in sin, sinful by nature, guilty in Adam, as soon as we can figure out our right hand from our left, we go plunging headlong into sin. The power of sin leads us into practical sin. The force of sin leads us into real transgressions. We're people who live the whole of our life cursing at the sky. Living lives that say there is no God and I hate that God. So we find ourselves in enmity with God, completely incapable of finding peace with him. And the question that so many in the world would ask at this point is, so what? Who cares? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they speak that as if it were an excuse. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I know this one Bible verse, and so maybe that's my hall pass to heaven. And they take it, they twist scripture out of its context, and they say things like, judge not lest ye be judged. They say things like, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. They say things like, only God can judge me. And we say to them, oh, he will. Because the scripture has said very clearly, Acts 17, that the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. The worst thing for an unrighteous people is a God who comes and judges in righteousness. Because he cannot be bribed. And he cannot be convinced. And he cannot be tricked and he cannot be deceived. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Not only are we born in guilt, not only are we born sinful, but scripture says that we store up for ourselves wrath upon wrath upon wrath. We take God's good gifts and we use them and we abuse them and we consume them while we blaspheme his name. 
We take his patience. It was meant to lead us to repentance. It was meant to draw us to him. We consume these good gifts that he has given us while never thanking him, while never honoring him, while never worshiping him. And therefore the wrath grows higher and higher and higher as we await this day of judgment. And pretty quickly you learn to realize that God is not some type of cosmic policeman. He's not some type of disinterested judge. But that in this law, because he was revealing himself, God is angry with sinners every day. This God is offended. And when that day comes, that punishment will not be handed out impersonally. It will be the wrath of God upon our souls. The wrath of God upon worthy sinners as we stand face to face with him. And that nothing will be hidden from his eyes on that day as we read in Revelation 20. The books will be open and everything that a man has done in this life will be laid bare. Many of these things to ourselves for the first time. We will recognize the filthiness of our rags in that moment. We will recognize that we have done nothing that can earn anything before this holy, holy, holy God. The whole of our lives and our thoughts and our motives and all the rest laid bare before this God. There will be no hiding. There will be no excuses. There will be no complaining. There will be no back talking. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But we have no answer for the things that we have done in this life. Because again, he says there's none righteous. No, not one. So the question of the whole Bible, having comprehended this, is who then will ascend the holy mountain of the Lord? Who can stand before a God like this? How can unrighteous sinners stand before a holy, holy, holy God? If his plan is to come and make his dwelling place here with man, then who can be here? And Psalm 24 says it's only he who has clean hands and a pure heart. So pretty quick, quickly, what we come to realize is that we need a champion. We need a better representative because Adam failed. It's not enough just to be born in the flesh in Adam, the man of the dirt. We must be born again in another man, a man that's come from heaven. Someone who's not only our champion and not only our representative, but a suitable substitute. Because the scripture proclaims over and over and over again, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Even if we can live perfectly righteous lives from this point to our last, how do you deal with the debt? How do you deal with the offense? How do you deal with this holy, holy, holy God who is full of wrath for the things that we have done? But then we go back to the garden. And we remember that no sooner had the man and the woman rebelled against God. No sooner had God come in and spoken this curse that they had placed themselves under. But then in cursing the serpent himself, he promised that there would be a seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent. We're reminded that this holy, holy, holy God is loving and kind and merciful and gracious to wretches like us. He had promised the man that the wages of sin are death and death did in fact enter into all creation through this man's sin. And yet God was there. Promise so incredible that the common mind cannot comprehend it as he says I will send forth the seed of the woman and he will stop the head of the serpent and we know that this one who has been promised and this one who has come he's none other than the God man come from heaven conceived of the Holy Spirit born of a virgin not coming through ordinary generations so that he himself might come and be called holy and pure and spotless not born with the guilt not born with the sin nature that is common to all the rest of men that he would be called holy 
the God-man, fully God and fully man. This is why we can't have this unity. We can't have this oneness with the Mormons or with the Jehovah's Witness. Because we worship the God-man who has come, who according to the author of Hebrews has been tempted like us in every way, yet without sin. He wasn't just born sinless. He continued on in the sinless perfection. Spotless as, as a lamb, perfect and blemishless in all of his life, doing all that law and love demanded, never saying or speaking or thinking or being motiv motivated by anything that was not done in perfect submission to the Father, fulfilling all righteousness, everything that the first Adam failed to be, the second Adam came and he accomplished, pleasing the Father at all times. And yet, according to 1 Corinthians 15, he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That on the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. That he is the suffering servant that we read about back in Isaiah 53. That God has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. As you work through these scriptures, you begin to realize that God had taken everything that we deserved. And everything that we had broken. And everything that we had done in offense against him. And laid it upon his own son. The curse that Adam and Eve earned for us, the curse that we live under, the curse that we are aware of as we walk around and we see sickness and death and decay. He took that curse and he laid it upon his son that he might redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming that curse for us, says Galatians 3. Suffering once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 2, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. To what end? Colossians 2 says, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside by nailing it to the cross. He came not only to take the weight of our sin, he came not only to take the guilt that we deserve, he came not only to receive that curse upon himself, he came to appease his father's wrath. As Romans 3 says, a propitiation for our sins against this holy, holy, holy God. He took that wrath. He took the cup of his father's wrath. He drank it in full. He turned it upside down and he declared to the world, it is finished. And this holy, holy, holy God in love and mercy and grace and goodness and kindness to an undeserving people, the scripture says it pleased him to crush his son. The righteous for the unrighteous. And then to make clear that his death was enough. To make clear that he had, in fact, satisfied his son's, his father's wrath. To make clear that the curse had been lifted from those who are in Christ Jesus. God raised him on the third day, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That when Christ Jesus walked out of the grave with our salvation held high, what he was making clear was it is, in fact, finished. The spotless lamb had laid down his life and satisfied the father's wrath. He had been delivered up for our trespasses, but the scripture says he was raised for our justification. 2 Corinthians 5 says it was for our sake that he was made sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And we begin to realize that not only has our sin been laid upon him, not only has he taken our curse upon him, not only has he drunk down his father's wrath on our behalf, but all of his righteousness credited to us. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That this is the only way man has ever and will ever be saved before this holy, holy, holy God, having no righteousness in his own, but having a foreign righteousness given to him from another. The infinite and perfect righteousness of Christ Jesus, impugned, credited, 
put to our account so that we stand before God on that day when he comes to pour out his wrath on all the sinners of the world, we stand secure and safe and blessed because we're clothed in the perfect righteousness of another. This is why we cannot find ourselves in union in oneness with the Roman Catholics. Because we recognize that there is nothing we bring to the table and there is no righteousness in ourselves that will stand before God on that day. It is only the righteousness of Christ Jesus. This is the one faith. This is the doctrine. This is the irreducible truth that we must hold to. And the scripture holds us out before us and they say, any who would believe in this Christ, any who would trust in this Christ, and all that he has accomplished, they will be welcomed in. Not only forgiven, not only justified before God, but cleansed and adopted, welcomed into his family with the hope of glory. This is the one faith. And I ask you, as you think back to all that I have just said, and I ask you to all that we have studied all throughout this book of Ephesians, and I ask you who have been through our membership class and all that we have, st all that we have studied there, how much of this do you do? This one faith that we declare, it's not a thing that man will do. It is a thing that Christ has done. This one faith is a declaration of a thing I say to you again that is true whether you believe it or not. It is a done thing. Not a commandment. We don't say to one another, live out the gospel. The gospel's a done. This is our one faith. This is the place in which we have placed our faith. This is the thing that unites us is the church of Jesus Christ. And beloved, I began this by saying that I recognize that there's people in this room that are all over the place with regards to their own subjective faith. I recognize that for some of you, you hear the words that I've just said, you say, that's not the gospel I learned. That's not the place in which I've placed my hope. If that's you, then I say with complete assurance, if you would turn and repent and trust in this Christ today, you will be saved. For those of you that already placed your faith in this Christ Jesus and everything that he has accomplished, then I say to you with absolute assurance, this same Christ who gave his life for you will persevere you to the end. So continue trusting in this truth, this one faith to the very end. Father, we love you and we thank you. We thank you that your gospel, this one faith in which we have placed our hope, it is not a thing that we ourselves are meant to accomplish. We thank you more than this, it is a thing that is so simple that a child can understand it. And Father, as heavy as the bad news is, as hard as it is for us to really wrestle with the reality that we ourselves had no righteousness to hold up before you, Father, we praise you for that reality and that revelation because we know that it's only by it that we will be driven to Christ. So, Father, my deepest prayer this morning is that for any among us that have not yet placed their faith in this Christ and his accomplished work, that today would be the day you would send your spirit to call them to life. Bring them to repentant faith. For all who have, Father, I pray that you help them to never believe they have outgrown this gospel. They continue to keep their eyes fixed on Christ and all that he has done. Father, we worship you in light of this good news. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.